We've got our finger on the pulse. We're Business Now, AsiaPacific.com. Welcome to Beat Up Today, October the 14th, 2020. I'm Mike Ryan. Today we cross to Boston and talk to Mike Hubri from New Jobs for Massachusetts. And John Blackburn talks about the challenging state of politics and governance in Australia. Mike Ruby is president of New Jobs for Massachusetts, which has been focused on removing the barriers in law to rapid job growth. Mike has been an employee, an employer of professional consultants, and has spent many years in grassroots politics on the pro-growth side. Mike, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us how you became involved in advocating for independent contractors. Well, essentially, it, I was born into this work and didn't know it unless I looked backwards. I was uh, born into a family of three generations of very successful per- performing musicians. So all my young life, I saw guys and women supporting themselves with you know, short-term jobs, short-term assignments, musical gigs. Uh, my first job was being a paper boy, which is almost the classic independent contractor work. Uh, I've been, a, as you said, I've been an employee for 20 years. I thought that that had kind of some limitations. So for 25 years, I had my own firm with consultants, and I learned that there is nothing like the freedom of being self-employed, even on small, you know, job-to-job type of business. Uh, eventually, I. Uh, left that profession uh, and worked in grassroots for a number of years. And I discovered that conservative candidates to whom the public in America looks to for economic solutions, especially rapid job growth, had very little to say about where rapid job growth comes from, you know, where it comes from and what policy, public policy should do to promote it. So I said, we need to start a nonprofit that focuses on the issue of where rapid job growth comes from and how it benefits the public and the practitioners that do it. Tell us more about New Jobs for Massachusetts and what are its main goals, though? Well, it, we are a, a certain type of uh, nonprofit that's called non-deductible. So we don't you, you don't get a gearing for... Um, a contribution. You don't get a tax reduction, but we are allowed to to basically lobby the public and inform them about legislation. We can draft legislation and submit it, um, and we we run the full gamut of education to lobbying, and we can get out there with signs if we wish, if that's if that's effective. So we're a nonprofit, and we have we have supporters who, in our case, are like-minded individuals of all shapes and sizes, and they think that our state is uh, highly resistant to the state laws or very resistant to new job growth. So in preparation for forming the, uh, the company, we found that we have actually 71 different barriers, taxes, regulations, court cases, uh, laws, that are barriers to job growth. So we prioritize them. And the top on the list was the law we have against independent contracting in this state, which would be a absolute fountain of better paying work for a great many people, 
perhaps a third of the workforce here in this highly educated state. What's the difference between, say, an independent contractor and uh, maybe a self-employed? Are they the same? They're uh, very similar. Uh, Look at it this way. Independent contracting is a way for someone to work uh, by obtaining and conducting short-term projects for customers or clients. And it's one of several different types of self-employment. Independent contracting is self-employment, but if you form a, open a little shop, that is also self-employment. If you want to be a ceramicist and sell tiles or something to the public, that's another form of self-employment. So, But everybody who is an independent contractor is self-employed, and they share the common uh, characteristic of being people who know who they are and what they're good at and what they want to do and decided to be responsible for themselves, although they're widely accused of being tax cheats, they know that there's no money in being a tax cheat. The, the money is made in doing a great job, have clients come back and buy more from you because they just can't get along without whatever you do. So the, the two are similar. We've counted easily 17 or 18 synonyms for independent contractor, like gig workers, or we have a IRS Form 1099 workers. Sometimes corporations call them external staff. But there are a lot of words for the same thing, which is living your life economically, doing short projects. What are the main limits then on independent contracting? And are we just basically talking about state laws or are there federal laws involved? Mike, there are both federal and state laws involved in independent contracting and and its limitations. The primary law is a federal law called the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Now, in my pocket watch, that's 82 years ago. So, and it has changed very little in 82 years. The law itself, the FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act, sets a number of minimum requirements for wage and hour and terms of conditions, you know, working conditions, laws. And the states can set their own laws that are more strict or more demanding than the federal law, but they can never get rid of the federal restriction and they can if in case of contradiction the uh, upper hand always goes to the federal government in the case of independent contracting interestingly enough federal law doesn't provide for the individual to choose to be an independent contractor and that is reflected in all the state laws in fact it the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act doesn't really discuss independent contracting at all. It says everyone's an employee if they're doing something. And, you know, if there are some exceptions, they'll be listed in the back, which they are. So it's a mix. What's happening at the moment with this is that several of the states that are dominated by, we'll call them liberal or progressive uh, tastes, are putting in vastly stricter stricter requirements on who can be an independent contractor and essentially 
trying to run independent contractors out of business. So it's quite a tussle. It has a lot of people's livelihoods, both part-time and full-time, are at stake. And this is a battle that is going to last well beyond the November election this year. It's going to be ongoing for quite some time. Can you characterize your challenges then as battle against big government and unions? Actually, it's the, the unions come first. And they have made common cause with the plaintiff's attorneys, which is uh, people who, in the U.S. law, uh, they they are aggrieved over something and want to get employer money uh, to compensate them. And those two hunt together, the plaintiff's attorneys and the unions, and they have seized upon government as a tool to implement what it is, the control that they want over the private economy. And Big government is part of it, but if you just rail against big government, you're missing your real target and you're missing the weaknesses uh, as well of the unions and the plaintiff's attorneys. So we try to change what the government does and incidentally the size of it, but big government in our, for the last 80 years, has been a a result of big union power and their alliance with uh, plaintiffs' uh, attorneys. What states are the laws and the limitations the worst? Uh, would probably California would probably be way up on the top there. I would think. Now, not saying that it's just because it's a Democrat-run state, uh, but I've heard some horrendous stories about California. California has absolutely the worst law. It's a fifty-eight hundred word. It's like as long as a chapter of a sh- of a good you know good sized chapter of a regular book, and it was its its biting teeth are copied from Massachusetts law. So I would say, in terms of damage, we Massachusetts have the second worst law, but we managed to accomplish all that damage in one hundred words. So it is at least easy to read and to some extent understand. There are several third place states but their their damage is so much less that very few people even know they have what's called this ABC test uh, in their law so they don't really qualify to be numerically ranked but coming up from the side is the federal government where uh, a bunch of blue state senators and the um, uh, their representatives, federal senators, are proposing something called the PRO Act, which is California's law, but it made even worse by several other uh, uh, provisions that are unrelated to independent contracting. But the, the federal law that's been proposed, and there are now two of them doing slightly different bad things, uh, are really would be far worse than any state law has even dreamed of being. So the question is, did the unions stop working the state model when they learned enough about what would happen in California that they switched to the federal, or was federal what they always wanted to do and California was just the warm-up? So we're learning about that mm. strategy. Can you give us an example then of bad legislation? The um, There's been a new act proposed. I have not read it. it I just learned about it 
these are sort of going through one side of our government and not the other sides. So you never know how seriously to take them uh, three weeks before an election. Mm. It's called the Worker Flexibility and Small Business Protection Act. And so you can be guaranteed, given what where we are on the calendar, that this will absolutely make all workers inflexible union members and crush small business. And that's what it does. Yeah. It ends, it completely ends nationwide independent contracting. It ends the what's called the franchise model, which is all the fast food and consumer services uh, that use uh, brand names and sell nationwide. I'm sure you have many of them in Australia. And it, it ends them. It subjects all business, large and small, to gigantic paperwork requirements and horrible fines that can be up to 1% of the uh, net of the company. In other words, the government would become a small shareholder uh, of all these, uh, well, 1% is a shareholder Mm -hmm. of all these companies if if they're penalized. And they set forth a number of privacy violation provisions of of publicizing, demanding that the companies publicize the name and address of certain executives of the company, which is just setting them up for shaming and vandalism. So it is an unimaginable bill. It's actually being proposed in uh, Congress. People cannot understand why they're doing it. And I would consider this to be a class one example of a just an unimaginably damaging, terrible law where the the, the very, very few are benefit while the rest are hurt. Is this a, uh, a Democrat-led uh, initiative or is it a, supported on both sides? This is a union-led initiative. Mm. The, unions, the unions and their, uh, their fellow travelers, the progressives, which is very far left, farther left even than most, most mm. union bosses, is leading. They, they, they're in a precarious position. And they, they believe they're going to win both chambers of our legislature and the uh, executive branch, the presidency. And so they're teeing up all of this really extreme legislation so that later on when they believe they're going to win, they'll be able to say to people, well, we told you and the voters voted for it. So step aside. We're going to do this. Mm. We're coming up to the uh, presidential elections, as you mentioned, Uh, global news around the world. It never stops astounding us because there are so many things that are popping out left field. What are either sides, though, saying about such laws and the the, uh, limitations on the self-employed? That is an excellent question, Mike, because it has such a puzzle. It's a puzzle, and it doesn't have a clear answer. The The battle started when a, a union boss, very powerful union boss named Rich Trumka, said that Democrats, he literally threatened Democrats. He said, you won't get a dollar or a door knock from us if you don't pass our leg- help pass, us, pass our legislation, support it. And he meant the PRO Act and this other worker, you know, Flexibility Act. So that means we're going to withdraw from you, which is they are the the teeth and the money of the Democratic Party. Right away, Biden 
and later Biden Harris said, "Nope, we're totally for you. We're gonna we're for the Pro Act. We want to make California law a nationwide law. So we're mm. all in. Mm. Count us there." Okay. When their first act uh, passed the House, President Trump said, I am going to veto it if it gets this far. I am opposed to this. So independent contracting became a presidential campaign issue. And Biden has repeated his claims that he'll support the unions and drive people into union jobs. Uh, That is not what any independent contractor wants, Mm. guaranteed are just none that want that. And there are 57 million Americans who want to be independent contractors or self-employed some of the time or all of the time. In other words, full-time, part-time. Now, so Trump, when, when Trump, when Trump said that he wanted to, uh, he would veto it and opposed it, and he's repeated that, it became a presidential issue. So we said in our little, our little, you know, independent contracting self-employment cave, we said, ah, this is a presidential issue. We're going to get some debate on this. But Republicans have not really run against it. And I'm sure you can look it up and mm. find some more than I've found uh, because I haven't looked thoroughly, but it hasn't it hasn't been on anybody's megaphone yet, which is how I judge it. It's on Trump's megaphone once or twice and then not. So the Democrats are loudly in favor, Mike. The Republicans are mostly silent. It sounds like an opportunity gone wasted, but it's still there three weeks. And, you know, every day is a whole separate campaign at this point. So that's the best I can do. It's a lopsided situation. Dave Rubin said that government is fantastic in coming up with solutions that they've created the problem in the first place. So, <laughs> and, it's, and it's very true. I mean, they're experts and then they create more problems from that solution and it just goes round and round and round. And it doesn't matter which side, whether you're on the right or the left. Look, when you uh, look ahead, say, five years' time, does all this upset or upheaval about AB5 and part-timers, uh, freelancing make a difference? It makes an enormous difference, mm. Mike. I I sometimes feel uh, like one guy trying to get everybody's attention by banging one pot out in the middle of the field. Mm. Uh, we're in a battle for access to the free market by the ordinary individuals of this country at any time of their lives that they feel they need it. And it, we don't we don't toll we don't make any money. I won't if we win I won't make a dime. It's just something that needs to be done. And if we fail to do this, we will lose access to the private sector. The unions do not want individuals to know their real value because then they'd go get it and they would be happy with their lives and they're not a, a customer for the grievance industry. They don't want, for instance, the education unions don't want you to know how inexpensive really good education can be. It's one excited teacher, one subject, and, a, and any number of students. And now with online education, it's hundreds of thousands of students. They don't want anyone to know that. They don't want you to be comfortable in your work and have a flexible schedule because you won't complain, you won't strike, and you won't want, certainly won't want to be represented by a union because you have customers, you love them, and you serve them. So we're fighting here 
in this battle, and we'll be fighting next year too, to make sure that the individual, whether it's just out of college or she's got a family and needs part-time work or a retired couple and they want to work for a couple more years and strengthen their retirement income, whoever they are, someone right out of just got fired, giving them access to the best thing that they can be is where we all benefit. We will have a bigger economy, we will have a happy, undivided country, and we will have widely spread wealth of a type that people earn. So this is an enormous battle, and the unions are as opposed to every word that I've said as they possibly could be. So it is, it's an issue to follow. I spent eight, nine years in absolute anonymity, and this year it just exploded into the public view, and it will continue there until we're solved. We've got the problem solved. Mike Ruby, uh, interesting times ahead. Um, no more interesting than the next three weeks. Uh, good luck. Hopefully your nerves will, will last you that time. Uh, great, <laughs> great chatting, talking, and uh, all the best. And we must do this more often too, I think. I've enjoyed it very much, and I look forward to talking again. Thank you very much. John Blackburn is a consultant in the field of defence and national security. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of New South Wales, the Institute for Regional Security, the Sir Richard Williams Foundation and the Australian Institute of Energy. John has extensive experience across the fields of strategy, policy, planning, operational command, capability development and material acquisition. Speaking of material, a lovely coat he's wearing right now, rivaling Alan Jones, I would think. Uh, John, well, welcome, to, uh, welcome to your nightmare. Good morning. Thank you for that, Mike. Very dapper indeed. Look, uh, what isn't dapper, as we we would say in Australia, is the challenging state of politics and, for want of a better word, governance in Australia. What are your thoughts? I think we are going through some very difficult times, and what that's doing is exposing the cracks or weaknesses in our system. And so, whilst we're in the middle of a crisis, we're going to have to clearly support the political leaders we've elected to get through the crisis. But let's have a look at this and say, is there something we can learn from this? Because it's not in a good state. We've got to do things differently in the future. Uh, and we're going to have to, I guess, see how we're better prepared for these types of crises in the future. Is the environment for good governance and policy making and healthy at all levels of government at the moment, from, say, uh, local, state and, uh, and federal? From the people I speak to in the local government levels, the answer there is no. Again, they're pretty much overwhelmed. And I think in the state to federal levels, we've got a really interesting problem. What the crisis is showing to us is that the federation structure and the governance systems and how the politics works was okay perhaps for most of the last hundred years, but it's not fit for purpose for the world we live in today. And it's certainly not going to be fit for purpose when you think about the range of challenges and crisis we might have to address in the next couple of decades. So things aren't going to get any simpler. Our system needs to be revisited. In what way would you change it to make it uh, more, more relevant? I think the way we have to look at it is understand how we got here. So if you look at the past couple of decades, there is a lot of things written about the brave economic policy, the leadership shown by both sides of politics, uh, and that's for the Hawke-Keating and Howard governments. And what they did 
beyond the short-term politics to set us up to be a strong, resilient economy got us through the GFC. But the last decade, something has shifted. You've gone from that long-term focus to a real short-term focus, minimal thinking about how do I prepare for something beyond the next election. I would say for both sides of politics, we've seen a lot of internal <clears throat> focus. We've got all these leadership changes and a growing trust deficit. Uh, whilst we've seen what the ICACs at the state level are producing, the lack of a federal ICAC makes it very hard to have trust, particularly when you see significant examples of dishonesty, marketing and lack of ethics. So <clears throat> when you look at the journey to where we are, we now find ourselves in this period of crisis and a compounding crisis, not just one, the pandemic, the emerging economic crisis, which will not go away, I think, for the next few years, the possibility of concurrent events where we're going to have both a pandemic um, and bushfires or mm. natural disasters. And top of that, we've got a looming regional security and trade crisis, particularly with the emergence of China, its behaviour, the interaction with the, in the US. All of those combined together are really giving us probably the most complicated situation we've had in our lifetimes. <clears throat> but when you have a look at it, and the pandemic's a really good example, it is not a black swan event. It's not something that wasn't predicted. It was predicted. It wasn't a matter of if it was going to happen, but when. And today we're still saying, oh, look, this is a one in a hundred year in event, so can relax after this. No, there's nothing scientifically that's going to say you couldn't have another pandemic of a different time next year. What happens when we uh, start having bushfires? And we are. We're going to have bushfires. That's going to happen. If we have COVID. They're having trouble with COVID. If we have anything of the, uh, the size of the bushfires from last season, I mean, how are they going to cope? I mean, they're not coping now. Well, you've seen the Americans are having a problem doing this. Um, the idea that we'll just evacuate everybody to some area, if we've got a COVID outbreak, that's not going to work properly. The idea that in the past that, you know, firefighters from other states or overseas will just be flown in to help us. There's a serious problems. We're seeing the Americans deal with that today. When you come back to saying, well, why is it <clears throat> happening this way? Well, I think we're pretty good at reacting to crisis, but we're no good at preparing for them. And this is a bit of a difference on how the military works. Yes, they've got the assets to do it, but they spend a lot of time in what's called preparedness. What are those parts of my force capability that I have at a certain readiness level and how am I going to sustain them? So there's a lot of work that defence does in its training and thinking and planning that's not just about managing today or a near term, it's preparing. We need to take a little bit of that into the way our civil society works. Because I think what we're seeing is a lack of crisis management training and expertise, a lack of forward planning, a lack of preparation. Look at our supply chains. You couldn't say there was any preparation at all in our medicine or PPE supply chains. And that's why we're seeing the problems. But it's not just medicines. We are so import dependent on so many things we haven't thought through what happens if those supply chains get interrupted. Do you think um, there's a case um, that they hand this over to the military or give them a greater say in what happens and control on what happens? I think the model, particularly in a, a natural disaster or crisis like this, that defence sits there, waits to be called, and then it carries suitcases or guards, hotels. This is a mad way of using a defence force. However, I would not in any way advocate that the defence organisation should be put in charge of any aspect. Because if you think about it, let's just think about the economy and business, which is fundamental, and we think about security where defence is. Every decision the politicians have to make is a trade-off. Defence can understand operations and crisis and forward planning, but has, frankly, zero understanding of business. Business and economists understand that side. 
But most of the ones I've met in that space have no understanding of security. So what you do, you have to make some very difficult trade-off decisions. In my view, because of the last 30 years of economic prosperity, all our major decisions have been purely through an economic lens without understanding the security or the crisis implication. Mm. So really, it's a job for the politicians to do it. But here's the other thing. Our federation is what it is. But if you can get the governance of how we make it work, there's the big problem. The lunacy of what's happening now with states' inwards fixation and a lack of understanding how people actually live and work. Think about Albury Wodonga. I was told that the hospital there, which is split on campuses in Wodonga and Albury, is actually one hospital to service the community and the surrounding areas. They don't live and work with a line down the river that says you can't cross it sometimes. So when you get states going, whoops, we'll have a crisis, I'm going to clamp the border down, that's not how we live and work. You need to think about it in zones, how people do work, what the community support services are. So that's one example. And I've got to tell you, I think the dumbest thing I've heard in the last six months in this country, not America, is that Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders. I mean, you look at this going, okay, I understand where the federations come from and the state roles and responsibilities, but together states working as a team need to think about how their people, Australians, live and work and make plans on how you manage that, which is by zone, not by a line called a border. What's happened to evidence-based policy, transparency and transmission of facts to the public seems to be lacking. Well, one of the things that we're doing in our National Resilience Project uh, with the Institute I chair, AAA Australia, is we're looking at politics, governance, and part of that's looking at the role of the public service. Um, basically, I think since about how it's time, there's been a shift away from the bureaucracy, the public service, helping formulate policy and doing a lot of, not independent, but, you know, apolitical work. You can see, and it's been stated by the current Prime Minister, he wants the bureaucrats, the, you know, the, the public service, to give him information, not policy advice. So who does the policy advice? Well, probably lobby groups and relatively inexperienced staffers in a lot of cases, not all, but a lot of cases. What we found in the work we've been doing in this resilience study is the knowledge, the information, the ideas of what to, to do are out there in society, in the expert areas. But somehow we stop that information and knowledge coming out because it's compartmented. Or if you're in a hospital, you can't really express your view without the media team approving it. If you're in a government department, you do exactly what the minister says. You don't give alternate ideas. So what we're not doing is we're not using the knowledge, experience and capability of Australians to solve these problems because our political system has compartmented it down and really driven it into a political near-term space instead of saying, hang on, we've got a big problem to face as Australians, let's work out how to do it. Do you see the situation changing much over, say, maybe 12, 24 months? Not in the short term, because once you're in a crisis, all you can do is react. And, and whilst I may not agree with what some of the people are doing, when you're in a crisis, it's like in a military operation. You don't all sit around and have a debate about what the, you know, the, the, the company commander or the brigadier is doing or the general, whatever. You get on and do the job. What's important for us in this country is for us, all Australians, let's not have the quiet Australians, all Australians go, hang on, there have been a bunch of mistakes and things made. That happens in a crisis. Let's face reality. Nothing is perfect. But what could we do differently to be better prepared for the next crisis or the range of crises that are coming at us? The world is getting more complex 
it's less secure. And particularly when you see the politics of the US and the UK and Europe, you know, our assumption that we have a big ally who will always protect us really needs to be questioned. It's about Australians saying, hang on, we need to use every part of our society, its knowledge experience to together as a team work out what to do. But that requires being honest and open about what the risks are. So it's about us voters saying to both major political parties, we're not happy the way you've been acting, behaving in the last 10 years. Let's have a discussion about how we become more effective as a country, mm. not as a collection of state and territories. You've got um, Dan Andrews, uh, the Berejiklian uh, government in New South Wales, uh, Palaszczuk uh, in Queensland, McGowan in WA, uh, Marshall is not too bad at the moment in South Australia. Uh, each one of these premiers, though, seem maybe not so much Gladys, but each one of the premiers seem to think this is their kingdom. They're, uh, they're, this is our new country called Victoria, Queensland or WA. Uh, and then to compound the problems in Queensland, we have an election happening and it doesn't really hold well for the quality of of politicians or people governing the states for the future of, um, of each of these states and Australia. How do you see it? Well, for most of my life, I was a Liberal voter. And, uh, yeah, military have generally been a little bit more conservative. But a couple of years ago, I said to my Liberal politician friends, I said, there's something fundamentally wrong here. And I think both sides of politics really need to have a good hard look at themselves and understand that the way they're behaving and acting is too short-term and it's party before nation. So at this stage of my life, you know, 64 years old, I'm going, hang on, I have to rethink that party, you know, loyalty I may have had years ago and said, no, 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 we have a fundamental problem in this country. And some of the decisions states have made, you can understand what their motivation was, but I mean, when the Northern Territory goes and leases a critical port facility to a Chinese company, that's nuts. When Victoria goes and signs up to the BRI with the Chinese, this is a fundamental security international relationships role. There's some, we're, we're really getting off the planet here. We're Australians. We need to work as a team. Yes, the federation structure is there. The governance and how we agree to work is what needs to make it work fit for purpose of today. But if you have a look at the politics right now, do you think you're going to get any state premier having full trust in the federal level of politics? And vice versa. Yeah, and vice versa. So we've got to accept that we're off the rails, that we'll handle the crisis as best we can. And I think the early stages of the pandemic crisis, particularly the National Cabinet, were great, but that soon fell apart. Right now we're in election mode. Mm. We're going to have to muddle our way through this when the reality of the economic crisis hits us next year and the year after. We're going to have to say, look, we're going to have to change how we behave because we won't get through this and manage the next decade and leave a society fit for purpose for the next generations unless we act as Australians, not of a particular state or of a particular party. And that will only happen if enough Australians say, hey, we can see there's a big risk coming here and a big crisis. Let's face reality and get on and work as a team. You don't have every individual player go out on a football field. It doesn't work that way. They work as a team. John Blackburn, thank you very much. You're most welcome, And that's it for BNAP Today, October the 14th, 2020. Be safe, be kind. I'm Mike Ryan.